inviting, inclusive. Welcome to Brookside Community Church. Our second scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 42. We've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew for a while now, and uh, that's not going to stop. If you look at the lectionary calendar, it's not of my doing. I've only meant to make it intentional for us. So hopefully you've been following along. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 42. Hear now the word of our Lord. A disciple is not above the teacher nor a slave above the master. It's enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave to be like the master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, then tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, Proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of these will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone... Therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge you before the Father in heaven. But whosoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against his mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For whoever welcomes you welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of the prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in my name. Truly, I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in 1908, to celebrate Ringling Brothers' 25th year of opening a circus, a French woman named uh, Mademoiselle La Belle Roche performed a new act called The Thriller. Now, before there were even cars, and I have to find it here. Here's this, uh, I've got a copy of the 
poster board that went up, and you could probably find these anywhere. It's one of the most famous. Before there were even cars, she had this stunt. 1908. Hear, hear this. This is, I'm reading directly from the poster that advertised the, the Ringling Brothers 25th Circus. Ringling Brothers, last and latest, best and greatest of all the world's sensations. The death-defying, hazardous, terrific, blood-chilling, dangerous, danger courting automobile double somersault. Performed at a terrible height and followed by the downward plunge of awful speed. Outthrilling all other thrillers. Performed by the intrepid Mademoiselle. La Belle Roche. Before cars were even popular, this French lady is taking the car and riding it down the slope and then doing a double summer, somersault. Have you ever been to a circus? Well, as an animal rights advocate uh, like me, there are many things about the circus that I don't like. Not least of which is the fact that circus animals are confined virtually all their lives um, to live in barren conditions, forced to suffer extreme physical and psychological deprivation. But there's one thing I find extremely fascinating about circus, about the circus. It's the way that it makes a mockery of death. For instance, Clyde Beatty, Clyde Beatty um, at the height of his career, he at one time had 40 tigers and lions performing in the arena at once. Or the, wall, uh, the Wallen does. Now, I, I, I'm just looking up stuff about circuses, so I don't know much about this. But the Wallen does, they weren't content with just walking on the tightrope one at a time. They decided that it would be a good idea to cross the high wire with seven people at once in the formation of a pyramid. Well, there's this... Uh, at the time, a little boy, Billy, who had such a love for the surface circus that he carried around with him everywhere he went, this little toy circus wagon with little uh, wooden animals in it. And when he died, he was a famous guy, so when he died in his scrapbook, there was a photo of him in the very beginning of where he had been in the newspaper, a newspaper clipping of him riding an elephant. But little Billy grew up to be William Stringfellow. You may not have heard of him, but he was a human rights lawyer who was very active in the background of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And the main th thesis of his career, he is actually considered a, a prominent theologian, even though he never went to seminary. The main thesis of his uh, career that he carried on in his work was that systemic evil that's articulated in the Bible, especially the New Testament, is what the Bible refers to as the powers and principalities or the power of death. He argued that what it meant to be a faithful follower of Jesus means simply to declare yourself free from the spiritual forces of death and destruction and rather to submit yourself single-heartedly to the power of life. That was the thesis of all of his work. That systemic evil is what the Bible uses terms principalities and powers, which he calls the power of death that rules us. But what it means to follow Jesus is to declare yourself single-heartedly to be committed to the power of life. 
William Stringfellow argued that in many ways the circus does what the church is called to do. To confront the power of death that operates in the world so that it can be exposed and defied. We are supposed to expose the way that the world truly is by living, living as pioneers in the world as God has called it to be. We are to be pioneers of the kingdom. Our passage today comes actually right after a verse I read last week, uh, Matthew 10, 23. Now, you may not know, but it's actually a very famous verse in biblical scholarship because there have been debates ever since Albert Schweitzer about what the meaning of 10.23 is and whether or not it actually changes anything about the way that we read Scripture. This is what Schweitzer said. So the verse 23, 10.23 says, When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. But truly I tell you, you will not finish going through all the towns of Israel before the human one comes. So in 1906, you know, just a couple of years before Mademoiselle's stunt, Albert Schweitzer made the argument it stopped all other scholars in their tracks. He zeroed in on that verse that Jesus was sending out the disciples to be persecuted, but that Jesus believed that the kingdom would come before the disciples would return. And when you read the narrative, what you find out is that the disciples actually do return, not having been persecuted. And so he said, well, what does that mean? Well, so then he went on to say that this led Jesus to live out the inauguration in the kingdom himself. So he sent out his disciples expecting that the kingdom, that the end of the world would come. And when it didn't come, Jesus says, okay, now I've got to, then that means I've got to inaugurate it. But the phrase that goes along with Albert Schweitzer's argument is that the world is coming to an end and everything that Jesus taught and believed and you can see in his actions were based on the fact that he believed that the end of the world was coming. We've seen this in the last, you know, 100 years or so. People who have declared that the end of the world is about and even entire communities who are willing to sacrifice themselves because of this. Well, I, you can see how Albert Schweitzer kind of makes this argument, but I think there's some important things that Albert Schweitzer missed in his characterization of the kingdom. That's what I'm going to talk about today. In theology, the end of the world is known as the eschaton. Can everybody say that word, eschaton? So in theology, the end of the world is known as eschaton, and people who study the eschaton, the end of the world, or come to their own conclusions about it, that this is called eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the end of the world or your beliefs about the end of the world. And Schweitzer's argument then is known as a thoroughgoing eschatology. He says that the entire New Testament is based on Jesus' proclamation that the end of the world is imminent. So basically, I agree with Schweitzer's thesis that everything that Jesus taught and did was rooted in his belief in the imminent arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's imminent meaning impending, which for good reason I often confuse with imminent, meaning within, right? But the truth is, I guess, both of them are correct. Both imminent, meaning it's impending, and imminent, meaning it's within. I think Matthew's Jesus was looking for the end of the old world because Jesus was inaugurating a new one. 
I believe that Jesus' ultimate agenda, though, was discipleship, which is synonymous with a way of living in the world that necessitates political engagement. That's the inauguration of the kingdom, is living your life in such a way that you provide an alternative to the world around you, illustrating to them what the world was called to be, being pioneers of the world to come, living as pioneers of the world that God has called us to be, pioneers of the kingdom. So where Schweitzer got it wrong was that he thought Jesus was teaching that the end of the world had come or was supposed to come. But I believe that Jesus was teaching that the end of the old world has come and the beginning of the new world is coming in the disciples in the way that they live. So Jesus says the disciple is not above the teacher. I would say that this is by far one of the most important texts in the New Testament. Jesus makes clear that the conflict between him and the religious and political elites is only going to get worse. As he starts in the beginning and moving forward, we've read this context together. We've followed the story already. Matthew opens with this conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the world. John the Baptist announces that the kingdom of heaven is imminent, is here. And that changes everything. Jesus then is baptized in the midst of this call that the kingdom of heaven is here. And he hears this voice proclaimed from the sky that says, you are God's beloved. And then Jesus goes out proclaiming everyone else to be God's beloved. Jesus goes to the outcasts and the hurting. And he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and he charters this alternative community. I know, I'm, I know you've heard this, right? I'm outlining this every week, so you should probably like have notes or something just to see if I'm leaving something out. He charters this alternative community and he goes out acting as an alternative boundary keeper, going to people who were sick and hurting and outcast and declaring them that they were welcome, restoring them to wholeness, treating them as if they are thoroughly human and that those others that kept them out were missing something about what it means to be human. But here is the thing to remember, which I have discovered, I think we have discovered together over the last few weeks. This is what Matthew scholar uh, Warren Carter says. Generally, the world does not welcome and challenge a challenge. It, the, generally, the world does not welcome its challenge and its alternative. Generally, the world will not be welcome to its challenge and its alternative. If we go about living as an alternative community, don't expect the world to recognize it or be comfortable with it. Jesus' message, see, was a threat to those who find themselves in direct conflict with it. As we read further in the story, we will find the conflict gets worse. See, here is what we find, is that the world is not welcome to its alternative, and as we continue to live out Jesus' charter for an alternative community, we illustrate to the world what they're missing. And those who have benefited from the way that the world is will not find it too comfortable. A disciple is not above the teacher, Jesus says. They demonized me. Guess what they're going to do to you? They flogged me. You think they're going to do anything different to you? But do not fear them. 
Jesus says. Don't fear them because they may do some harm to your body, but they can't change your soul. So here's my question. This, I, all I'm going to do is just give you a question today to wrestle with. Is this what you have been taught growing up all along in your life, that this is what it means to be a Christian? That we come to church to find comfort, don't we? But the text here today is telling us that we're supposed to go out into the world to engage them with an alternative to offer them life and restoration and to offer them wholeness and peace to establish an alternative world where everyone is welcome. And that job may make it dangerous for you. It may even, if you read between the lines here with Jesus, it may even get you killed. Is this what you heard about the gospel? Is this what you've been told about what it means to be a Christian? But certainly this is what the text that Jesus is telling us today. If you are not willing to see these divisions, if you are not willing to follow me, even though it means danger, danger, then you've got it wrong about what it means to follow Jesus. So we're supposed to live as pioneers of the world as God calls it to be. We are pioneers of the kingdom. And by the way that we live in the world, we'll cause to expose the world the way that it is so that we can offer it the life that it's supposed to have. We're supposed to live in the face of death. Maybe Stringfellow was right. Maybe the church is like a circus. Maybe we're called to perform death-defying acts so we can expose the power of death out in the world and transcend it, to offer life to the world that doesn't know that there's anything else out there. The circus is an eschatological parable, eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. The church is supposed to be an example of the way that God wants the world to be. So William Stringfellow says the circus is an eschatological parody of the conventional society in the world as it is. In the circus, the risk of death is bluntly confronted and the power of death is exposed and defied. The circus reminds us of what the church is called to do. To openly, dramatically, and humanly portray the pervasiveness of the power of death in the midst of our everyday life. I don't think that means we're supposed to get, on car get in cars and go and do somersaults. I don't think Jesus is calling us to be evil, Knievel, and make our lives risky and damage ourselves or hurt ourselves because God finds glory in our suffering. I think it, that it means that when we see people hurting, we offer them restoration regardless of what we think it will cost us, regardless of what we think people will say. And knowing that if we do our job well, you can expect some pushback. You may even see it gets worse than that. But that's okay. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Like the circus, the church is called to expose, called to expose the world as it truly is while pioneering the kingdom. Amen? All right, so I'm not going to leave you with that. I decided, Amy's getting ready, but, but hold on, Amy. I decided today, rather than give you the questions to discuss at the beginning, 
I'm going to give you a ch- because I think this question is a fundamental question for us. I want to give you a chance to take seven minutes to talk amongst each other to answer some questions that I just now raised. And I'm going to let the benediction I'm going to give you today be your call to question. If you turn in the back of your bulletin, you will see the Franciscan benediction. Now, I can tell you, St. Francis thought the same way I do. I mean, I didn't learn this stuff out of nowhere. Right? So if you read St. Francis, you will find by the example of his life that this is how he understood the gospel. So I'm going to read this Franciscan benediction at the end of the service. What I would like you to do is to find a partner or two, read through this benediction for yourself, and then turn to the next page and take seven minutes and see if you can answer the questions that are there. And if you don't have a whole lot of time, just skip specifically to question number three. And I'm going to read the question for you right now. What's the difference between the following three statements? A, God provides us comfort as we live in an uncomfortable world. B, God helps us to be more comfortable with the world that we live in. Question C, God helps us to make the world we live in more comfortable. So here's my question. What's the difference between those? And question number four, which of these statements do you think can or cannot be true simultaneously? Am I just playing with words here, or do some of them say the same thing, or are they different? And if they're different, why? If they can't exist at the same time, why or why not? All right, so take a few minutes, get with a neighbor, uh, read through the Franciscan benediction, then look at the questions, and then take seven minutes to talk with each other. Trust me, we've got time. I didn't have a children's sermon, so this is what you get. (laughs) 